So welcome to our seventh Set the Month in Motion monthly podcast forum, produced in partnership with the City of Fremantle. My name is Denisha Quinlan and I'm the CEO of the Fremantle Chamber of Commerce. It is my very great pleasure to be here today for what was, must be one of our most intriguing conversations to date. As always, you can download and listen to our monthly conversations on any podcast station under Set the Month in Motion. In last month's discussion, the fabulous Al Taylor said the most important question any one of us should, in business should ask ourselves is what business are we actually in? And I think this idea has never been summed up better than by Elizabeth Arden, who famously said, I don't sell cosmetics, I sell hope. So how did one lady manage to sell hope to so many people across a century? Elizabeth Arden started her business in 1910 and as a sole owner managed to get over 1,000 product lines sold in 22 countries across 150 owned and independent red door salons, department stores and individual retailers, making her one of the wealthiest women in the world at that time. Her marketing campaigns included how-to tutorials in a time where makeup was largely associated with the lower class and harlots. She targeted instead the middle class, middle-aged and plain women for whom her beauty products promised a ladylike image along with youth and beauty. She stressed how to apply was more important than what you applied and was the initiator of the beauty makeover and coordination of the colours of the eye, the lip and the cheek. So why have I started with this example this morning? Well, today's conversation is thinking about growing our business from that initial point of understanding of what business are we really in to the different decisions we make to make our products and get them actually into market and particularly into markets overseas. In this Elizabeth Arden example, we can cover a simple hope to a makeover that makes someone look differently at themselves in the mirror, to training her hundreds of staff to sell the same message every single day, to the salon's highly visible red door, and right through to actually getting those 1,000 product lines of hope onto ships and through the doors of many home bathrooms across the globe. Whether it is a product or an idea, it is about breaking down the steps from the potential of our products. And in this small city of Fremantle, thinking about using our port to our advantage and thinking about the ideas that a port can bring in taking those across the globe. It's not just about what comes into our ports, but what we have the opportunity to take out of them. The building that you're in today and our Chamber of Commerce here in Fremantle was set up in 1873 to progress and protect the interests of business and trade. Today's conversation isn't a new conversation. We have been advocating for those industries and providing an export documentation service to hundreds of local exporters. These documents that we provide tell an intriguing story, as Marion will often testify, of actually what leaves our shores. Local success stories, both large and small. Our documents include brand names like Sadlias, Kalis, Plum Grove, Harvey Beef, Sadashi, Cullen Wines and Fremantle Octopus. Products from gold, wine, carrots, grain stock, livestock and beauty lines. One of the perks of working here at the Chamber is that we get carrots delivered fairly regularly, which is actually one of our best benefits, I must admit. And we are lucky enough today to have with us representatives of two leading local exporting brands in the room, 
Fremantle Octopus and local wine legend Swings and Roundabouts, as well as International Branding Consultancy Block. I am intrigued by their different products and their journeys, but also their answers to what business they see themselves in and how they make decisions to get their products to local and global markets. So to our panel, and thank you all so much for giving up your time to come and talk to us today. I'd like to start by introducing the first of our panellists, Monica Vagova of Fremantle Octopus. Monica has worked in the food industry for over 11 years now as a production manager and technical supervisor. She started in the UK with fast-moving consumer goods, working for a massive company supplying major supermarkets in the UK, and working with the newest technology in food production across a company whose employee base reached a few hundred. She is now the proud member of a local company representing Australian famous seafoods as a premium product, not only for local, but for international markets as well. And for those of you who have tried Fremantle Octopus at local venues like Little Creatures, I think you'll be surprised we let any of this deliciousness actually leave our shores. Monica, even contemplating the logistics of taking a fresh product out of our ocean and getting it to a local market seems daunting. How would you recommend businesses like yours even start to contemplate the export journey? Good morning, everyone. Um, well, obviously, the idea of exporting a product came to our mind. And starting from the scratch, obviously, wasn't easy because we didn't know where to start. So first, you have to realize you have to make sure wherever you decide to export, there is a market for it. Because whatever you do, if there is no market, you can push your product, you're not going to sell. So after research um, and loads of meetings, at the moment we are targeting Asian market. So after loads of meetings, we knew there is a market of, uh, for a premium octopus in Asia. I'm talking about China, Thailand, Japan, uh, and Vietnam as well. We established few contacts, and they are eager to get their hands on a premium Australian octopus. So if you know there is a market, the first thing you have to do, obviously, is register your establishment as export establishment. It's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of time, as most of you might know. And after, obviously, it is costly if you decide to export because you will be undergoing few audits. Um, once a year, twice a year, and everything, whatever you process, you will be audited for a process of your product. So it's quite diffi difficult if you never export it and suddenly everything changes and you have to prove that your product is safe for a human consumption. Thanks, Monica. And we'll hear more about, I guess, that, that process. Um, I think Monica's point that it's not just all about an idea and the, the glamour of, of selling hope. Um, there is a lot of paperwork <laughs> that needs to be done um, from an exporting and particularly as we move through different international markets. And um, after the, the podcast forum, we've got both Marion, um, who leads our export team, and Luke here today, who will be able to talk just a little bit about how important getting that documentation right really, really is. Our next guest, Andrew Moore, has over 25 years' experience in the wine and liquor industry, specialising in international and domestic sales, marketing and distribution. He has been the CEO and Managing Director for Xanadu Wines and consulted to brands like Hennessey, Mosswood, Cullens, Bollinger, Willow Bridge Estate and now Swings Around About. 
We are extraordinarily privileged to have Andrew in the room today. Um, he joined Swings and Roundabout as executive director in 2008. And since then, the winery has expanded with the purchase and opening of Swings and Roundabout's Tap House in Margaret River, while wine sales continue to grow from strength to strength, both locally and internationally. Andrew has sat on the board of Wine Australia for six years and is a past deputy chairman. Andrew, the conversation um, even that Monica introduced there about the expense, the capital, the, the ability to research, to find new markets, it's not something one person can do alone. Obviously, within the wine industry, the journey from getting it from vine to production and then into markets requires a number of different partners along the way. What recommendations or, I guess, experiences would you um, say help form some of those partners and choosing the right partners and the role that that plays in getting things to market? Thank you. And um, the, just before I go on to that question, the interesting thing about the wine market is that we're one of the few markets that, you know, um, we, we take our product from, we're an agricultural industry and a lot of people forget that about wine. You know, we're, we've, we've got the agricultural risk like everyone else. Um, and we take our product basically from a grape through to a marketing product and sell it ourselves, which in an analogy, it's like um, mining gold and selling uh, gold rings. You know, and that doesn't happen in too many markets. So it's a unique market in that way where you've got to have the experience from the beginning all the way to the end. So getting back to your question, the, the, the key thing I think, in particularly in export markets and even domestic markets to a point, is researching, as, as we just said earlier, but researching your partners and then selecting your partners. And it's very easy, particularly when you're entering markets and, say, my industry, you know, a lot of people are interested in wine. Um, not just going for the first person that approaches you or the first person that has real interest in your product, but to research who are the best uh, distributors in that market and who is the best fit for you as a distributor or an agent in that market. And, and to really target them and target them in a way that you can present your product as something that is needed within their distribution portfolio. So what we do, or what I do with all my clients, is that we, we've actually got a, a complete checklist where we go down and we, we look at the viability of each distributor and how that fits in with your brand and what you're trying to sell and, and whether that partnership works. Because sometimes a massive distributor, albeit it's attractive because they're so big and you think they sell a lot, you, you might just get lost in that noise. And what business are we in? Well, like you, we're, we're in luxury goods, like most West Australian products are. We're, we're at the top of the pyramid because we're, we're, we're generally, most products in Western Australia are super premium and low volume. So wine's no different from this state. So you've got to select people that can sell at a high price, not necessarily sell volume. So that's pretty important. I think that idea of choosing partners that reflect not only an ability to get to market but the values of who you are and what business you are in and I think you're absolutely right and you know having been in the hospitality sector it's very easy to go wow look at the LUC on that one you know it's fantastic and there's masses of it that I can get heaps but if you want to make a difference to the palate and you want to be in tables where you're not just flogging things for nothing I often think my god the amount of money in a $12 LUC bottle of wine that's gone from someone clipping a grape off through all of that production and all of those logistics to actually get to our table and even with the markup on top of that, it's an extraordinarily low margin business. So you do need people if they're going to sell that extra bit of luxury to have the ability to do that and to be niche, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. 
Finally, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our third panellist, Emma Watton, Director of Strategy at Perth's most awarded branding consultancy, Block. I've had the pleasure of oscillating between client and supplier and even part of the Block team over 15 years, and their approach to finding innovative ways to get products to markets is second to none. They started with an international focus and have continued to maintain a sense of difference, I think, in the WA market from those early beginnings. Emma has personally worked across every sector imaginable, from Coca-Cola to local law firms in Sydney, London and Perth. She's a passionate humanitarian and sits on the board of the humanitarian group, a law firm for refugees. Emma, we've talked a little bit about risk, size, um, the challenge of finding partners that understand who you are, the costs in all of these things in getting a product from an idea or a concept to market. Scale is obviously so important in these conversations. And we see it in the documents that do come through from, you know, really small exporters going to market to, to massively large companies doing it every day. Are there different approaches to creating a brand when you're a startup versus an established business with a secure cash flow? I think there are differences, but the, the process is, is fundamentally the same that needs to happen. Um, you know, we've heard speakers here talking about, um, you know, finding and understanding your, your purpose and, and how you connect in the world. And if you are going to be a premium brand, then making sure that you deliver on all of those elements. And when you're doing the branding process, whether you are a startup or you are an established brand, there's some fundamentals there that you can't skip. And I think one of the big misunderstandings in the market is the difference between design and branding. Um, branding is a a very deep process that is about finding your purpose and finding your connection and understanding your place in the world, understanding the place in the world of competitors around you as well, um, where the design process is much more about creating, and it can be very nice and very beautiful and it can be right, but it's creating the wallpaper um, that, that sits on the outside. And I think one of the challenges a lot of startups have is that um, They've made investment plans around product development and they've spent a lot of uh, often years of thinking before they even come to the point of branding um, and haven't allowed for an appropriate branding process to happen within that startup model. Um, it's still fundamentally important, in fact, even more important because your, your ability to connect to that key market and understanding what is that core market that's going to allow you to set up and expand is really important. And, and that market often has a very specific relationship with your product. Um, and if you go into a design process where you get a nice name or a nice logo that looks nice sitting on top of it, but you haven't really got under the skin of that point of connection and why people would care, um, then you're potentially missing a, a, a big opportunity. So, um, yes, scale does matter and the amount of money that you invest um, would, would change depending on the scale that you were. However, the big danger that most startups face is not allowing for that appropriate investment in it. They've, they've put a lot of investment into um, the, the physical development of the product um, and, and other partnerships around it. But I think the partnership with an appropriate branding consultant um, is fundamentally important into that process as well. And a good branding consultant will be able to design around you and your budget um, and and not just do a, a, a sort of cut and paste approach to, to creating a nice look that sits on top, but actually getting under the skin of how you connect. 
And just on that and thinking about it from an, uh, an export perspective, I think Andrew um, rightly said so many of our products are, are luxury brand products and, and come from a, a fairly primary base. Even locally here, we've now got direct flights from you know, China and Japan coming. Cultural differences in marketing and branding and getting products to market and understanding actually what the product is, I guess is a big part of understanding what market that you're in and how you sell that. Um, do you believe organisations need different um, cultural strategies within that brand? And I'll start with you, Emma, and then maybe move through how we define wine in different markets and what those characteristics actually are. But let's take the Asian market, both domestically and here. How do you make sure your brand can translate across different countries? One of the, the ways that we look at that or a framework we look at through is often we call brand architecture. Um, and I think the translation, and I don't just mean literal translation, um, of brands is important in different markets. And some examples from a, a, around the world, not just an Asian perspective, you know, there, there's one uh, product we're helping a client bring to market at the moment, which is fundamentally designed for um, the Chinese market. Um, however, the advice, you know, we're working with a team. We, we've become a partner in that team of the, of the product development. And um, the core part of the advice for them is find your authenticity locally. Um, be absolutely authentic to who you are. And we can help you translate that, but don't try and design something that is just for that market. It, it has to be true to yourself. Um, so, so finding your own authenticity first is fundamentally important. Um, and I think the, the translation into markets does matter. Um, the, the way that you talk and the way that you engage matters. Um, one of the, and this was probably one of the most surprising ones for me, um, I think was when I was working in the UK on uh, Avis globally. And across Europe was fine. It was mostly just a literal translation that we needed to do. But going into the US market was actually a fundamentally a communication translation that needed to happen. Um, the way that they bought product, the way that they engaged um, as, as a broad consumer base with buying product was fundamentally different. Um, and the messages needed to be quite different. And I think that is something that needs to be considered with, with local advice and, and local experience as well. And so bringing that partnership team together to make those decisions is, is really important. Um, from a, a brand architecture perspective, you often don't want to be creating fundamentally different brands for every market that you're going into. So what you're looking to do is understand what is the core part that remains consistent, whether you're here, whether you're in different Asian markets, US markets, what can you keep consistent so that you can be a global brand and you're not having to recreate things every time, um, but then how do you drop down into local market specifics underneath that? And there's, there's not, there's not a, a rule um, that allows that to happen. It's really rich, good conversations with partners who understand the market well and understand your brand. Um, Andrew, wine, I guess, you know, from a, a basic product perspective is quite difficult to differentiate in some ways and branding is a major part of that process. Do you have any further comment about the ability of how wine translates within an Australian market and the different decisions you have to make when you're taking it internationally? Yeah, I think what we we're talking about here and we, we were actually discussing before we uh, sat down the exact subject was, and brand architecture is critical. And, and in the early days of uh, when I was getting involved in export going back 20 odd years ago, we used to create different brands for different markets. And then you sort of lost who you were along the way. And, um, and, and you want to, and these days of, of um, you know, we're, we're just so visually online, 
you don't want a brand that you can't find on your website or, you know, that you're not promoting on any of your social media pages or anything like that. So with all my clients and, and particularly with Swings, we've um, gone through this process of trying to create a global brand that can be translated into every market. And then what we change is, is sort of our message per market. Um, not, not the actual label or the product, but how we translate that market, that brand to the market. And in China in particular, you've got to be very conscious that, you know, they don't speak your language and all that sort of stuff. So we have a Chinese section on of our website. Um, we have all our market, marketing materials translated into Chinese. Um, and we turn up to trade shows with all of this stuff. And I can't believe the amount of wineries that are next to me at trade shows that have got everything in English and it's all badly translated. And um, But I see it all the time. It's just turning up naive, really. And um, so th that's sort of the, the, particularly now that Asia has become such a massive focus for uh, West Australian products, um, is, is understanding them and understanding what, what, what translates your brand and what, what cues will get them to grab your brand and, and want to sell it. So, yeah. On trade shows, and I'll come Monica, I'm quite curious about the, the octopus differentiation because obviously that is something that's, you know, more difficult to differentiate. But just while we're talking trade shows, Andrew, a big part of the wine industry um, and tourism and many of our other sectors in getting into Asia markets in particular, it seems that trade shows are a major way that we focus on that. Are they just a big chin wag? How do you actually get the most out of a trade show? I think with, with wine trade shows, and, and a lot of people do treat them as chin wags or, or, um, uh, or social occasions, and you know, particularly when you get the Australian wine industry together, you know, you know, we do know how to drink. <laughs> um, but uh, the key is really never turn up to a trade show without a meeting. You know, never think that you're going to be able to stand behind a stand and, and, and this magnificent distributor with millions of dollars in his pocket is just going to happen to walk up to you amongst, particularly in my industry, you know, we're at global trade shows and Australia is about this size. You know, you go to ProWine in, in, in Germany, they have nine football fields full of halls. They're the size of football fields and they're chock-a-block full of wines from all around the world. So you've got to try and get someone just to your little stand in football field number one. And there's another eight that you're competing against. So what good trade shows, you can get a list of who's there. And the list is thousands of people. But you've got to spend the time and get onto it early, really early. Book your trade shows. Like I booked uh, Pro Wine over a year ago now. I do it every year in advance. I'm already getting people who register. So you, you just don't leave it to the last minute. And every trade show organiser will always be able to show you who's there. So email them if you think they fit you and make an appointment and, and just do it. And, and, and then you turn up and at least if you've got at least five appointments a day, then something will work for you, hopefully. It may not, but it's better than just standing there twiddling your thumbs, talking to your mate who's in the winery next door right next to you for the whole three days because you may as well do that in Perth. So it's critical to do your research and do your research on who's there. And even, you know, I use the West Australian Trade Organisation with some trade shows. They've got good contacts. I use Wine Australia. They've got great contacts. So I, I really use everyone who's willing to help. I use Austrade. You know, each office is different in each market. 
I was talking to someone earlier that, you know, some of the West Australian trade officers are absolutely brilliant. Some of them are hopeless, but that's in wine. Um, and then someone moves office and that person is, is good, the next person that comes in. And, but then if maybe the West Australian trade office isn't working for you, try Austrade. You know, they're working for you. And then try, if, you've, if you're lucky enough to have an industry like mine where we've got our own wine Australia, they've got their own people in the ground as well. So you just use these tools that are there for you. Never sit back and just think that by booking a trade show, spending a few grand on an airfare is going to get you a sale. That's amazing, Andrew. And I think that advice applies not just to trade shows. It actually applies to every day of doing business. You know, you can have the most beautiful bar, the most beautiful shop, the most amazing product in the world. But if you literally just sit there and open your door and expect people to come through it, they're not going to. And without that research and without that targeting and without understanding who are the partners, who are the associations, who are the different groups of people that can actually help you and continue to build that network, we are talking about a global network and the only way that happens is to actually understand the connections and the dots. And I think it's really, really important advice across the board. So thank you for that. Monica, I keep thinking about, as we were talking about branding of wine and labels and products, octopus, not quite so easy to, to differentiate and to, to create the sense of a premium product. Do you find you do different things with the product itself in different markets? Do you apply different sort of packaging or the conversations? How do you work with, say, an operation like Little Creatures through to a, you know, an Asian distributor um, in a product that is, I guess, so primary? Obviously, um, I have to add, agree with Andrew because when we targeted Asian market, we thought they want that premium packaging of the of a premium product and suddenly they said no no please stop we on we do not care about your packaging i want a plain simple bag with a sticker on it with basic information your product sells sell yourself so just because we built a strong brand and a premium product uh, already that and sustain behind it obviously uh, sold our product uh, for them, they do not care about anything else. They don't care about the packaging, they don't care about labeling how the product looks. Just because the product itself is a premium, good quality, they were happy with that. Uh, when I'm talking over East, let's say uh, local markets over East, uh, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, they do care about packaging. And since we're running with the same packaging for years now, uh, our company runs for 20 years uh, at this stage. Uh, there was never issue or idea to redesign the brand, the packaging, or a new logo that some of the Asian market didn't like our name, Fremantle Octopus. Really? It is 20 years we are running under Fremantle Octopus, and suddenly someone says, it's a little bit confusing, Fremantle Octopus. Octopus doesn't come from Fremantle only, since we fish from Lehman down to Bunbury, obviously. So, and some of our products are sardines or squid. Uh, they get confused, why is the brand Fremantle Octopus then? But since we do stand be behind our brand, and we already built a large clientele over East Singapore, Dubai, they have no issue with the packaging. So right now we are in the middle of redesigning our packaging for China, it will be simple, it will be basic information, but that's what they want. 
because end of the day, they want only the product and some of the clients do not care about the packaging and the money what we put into it, even if it's a really high value packaging and fancy looking, but they do not care about it. So if you sell your product over East or wherever you go, make sure the product uh, is what you stand for and you already built your clientele around it because some of them not gonna like obviously everything about it. As you're describing that then I thought back to that Elizabeth Arden example and the makeovers and you know in a way to get people to understand you know that idea of color and putting your eye here and here and here they have to try it and they have to see it and they have to touch it and they have to feel it. Wine, octopus, in addition to selling I guess the idea you also have to be able to demonstrate that your product lives up to that expectation. What role does enabling your customers to try and to experience your product, both locally and internationally, have in getting it to market? As Andrew just said, actually, um, when we're approaching different and new distributors, new agents, new customers, as Andrew says, standing in a tent and waiting someone to walk up to you, that's not how it works. When we targeted China, it, we actually ended up, or my sales team, actually, they booked appointments, they meet with the customer face-to-face, -face, researching who will be the best, uh, let's meet everyone, maybe someone will be the right person for us, and actually approaching them directly. Sitting in a tent and waiting someone to approach you, that's not how it, ha not how it happened, because three day on China Expo, Seafood, Global Seafood Expo, Actually, there is thousands of people. And not everyone will be interested in octopus. Not everyone will be interested to buy a huge amount or pay a premium price for a product. End of the day, even a couple of people were in the expo and a couple of people literally meeting distributors and agents face to face, bringing samples of the product, uh, let them taste, let them take a little sample at home so they, they can discuss as, the, as themselves. But do your research, go out there, meet them face to face. S most of them will be the incorrect pe people, not what you are searching for, but you will find actually someone who will be interested in your premium quality product, it will be interested in your product, what you believe in, and you know it has a strong market. But do not sit on your tushy. <laughs> go out there, actually meet people. You've got nothing to lose. You can only gain at least a customer out of it. From a cost perspective, and particularly I think about wine, getting that product to be tried by so many different people must be a huge component of the cost of the business, Andrew. How do you get that balance right? Uh, very hard. <laughs> to be honest, uh, in wine, yes, yeah, samples are a massive part of it. Um, but it, it, getting it to market, you, it's, it's when you basically choose your distributor and um, and working with them and giving them a, a sample allowance and all that sort of stuff, but picking how you how, how you show your wines. The the thing with wine is third party endorsements, unfortunately, are massive, massive. So you know, getting ninety six points from James Halliday can sell you a lot of wine, but you're not always going to get that every time. But it it comes back to really concentrating on your product and how you bring it to market and how good it is. And getting that third-party endorsement is, is what helps people want to try the wine. Um, also, how you present your product at, at these shows is pretty important. Um, allowing people to just taste their way through it, explain it, 
um, and then giving them uh, a degree, if they order a container, a degree of samples that allow them to take it to market and not wasting it. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, it, it, the balance is, is impossible, even at our cellar door. You know, it's, um, we make sure that uh, people, when they come to our cellar door, don't just get a little trickle of wine. I actually insist that people get a decent taste so people go away enjoying the experience of being at Swings. So, um, yeah, it's very hard to get it right, to be quite honest, but um, particularly with wine. So, Emma, just before we go to the floor for questions, I'm interested in your take on some of the comments just around both packaging and brand and the importance or, or not importance in some markets of how you can tell the story of a product if things like packaging isn't so important to them. I think one of the things with branding is it's it's so much bigger than packaging and logo and, and design. That is all a part of it. But it's it's about that, um, you know, finding that really authentic voice, how you, you talk about who you are and, and, and where, where you live in the world. And, and so your your retailers, your, your sellers, your distributors understand um, and are able to, to carry that messaging through as well. Um, website is obviously a big part of that. Your social voice, um, you know, your posts through social media, um, your... Uh, presentation when you come to you know events like this this is part of block branding's brand of, of me sitting here um, and so understanding what is important um, to the experience that people have around your brand um, you know the fact that we want them to enjoy that experience that swings and roundabouts you know all of these things become part of your brand voice that you you want to define um, so that it is understood and you're not revisiting it every time you think about a communication opportunity. Um, often people uh, come and, and the first approach is talking about either an advertising opportunity or a packaging opportunity, but actually it's usually symptomatic of they haven't sat back in and, and defined their brand and how they connect and so then all of those communication opportunities become easier. If it's appropriate in some markets that you um, don't do packaging, you don't do packaging and that's not part of the brand experience and that's fine, but the authenticity of the product um, is fundamental then that, that carries it through. Um, so I think I think that that defining that brand voice and 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 the way that you communicate and what really fundamentally matters to your brand is is great up front because it makes those decisions making along the way um, a lot easier and a lot quicker. Um, and I think when when you're looking at things and one of the biggest challenges often you, you talk about um, your brand and people understand the brand name and one of the most challenging processes I think organisations can go through is a rename. Um, one of the realities of renaming is that it's kind of like renaming your child. Um, you've had a lot invested in that, in that name. Um, and getting to a point of being able to change that and, and figuring a way to take the equity with you that you have built up. Um, but if the brave new world that you're looking into makes that name not appropriate, then you have to go through those hard yards and, and sooner is better than later um, because those problems that are springing up aren't going to go away. They keep springing up. Um, and, and finding a way to navigate through that process is, is really important. And again, it can come back into brand architecture as well, um, that you don't don't always have to just do a, a straight switch out. You can look at how you add something onto your name that then is that international point that carries you through. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's really about the, the timeliness of that process, I think. And as you were talking, I think a, a big part of it's also 
particularly in Western Australia, a sense of place as well. I, I know when we were putting that pitch together with Block up to the state government for that marketing primary products um, in into Asian markets, you know, a big part of that brand creation was actually just creating we've got blue skies, we've got amazing clean water, we've got, you know, the freshest, most beautiful landscape you can see translates into so many of our brands here. And I think it applies as much to wine as it does to octopus and to other things. And sometimes even creating a sense of place that this is from Fremantle or this is from Perth or this is from Western Australia carries with it a whole lot of connotations as part of that place and getting that place to market. Um, that's really interesting and a really interesting part of this conversation. And I think for businesses in Fremantle, it's also a really interesting part of our, even down to our retail conversation. You know, we want to be retail businesses that are Fremantle-based retail businesses as opposed to somewhere else. So understanding where your products have come from as well as that brand and the packaging and then the, the distributors and partners that you actually need to take it to market I think have been really interesting parts of this conversation. I'm going to hand over to the floor now. I think that's enough talking from all of us. Any questions from to any of our panellists or on any of the topics in general? Perez has got the mic, so just pop your hand up um, if you've got a question. Thank you. Um, good morning. It's John Tedesco. I'd like to pose a question to Emma. Um, what do you think is the role of staff in developing brand? Uh, do staff have a role in providing some insights into the developing of a, of a company brand? I think when you're planning the development process, we take each case at a time and usually, yes, staff do have a fundamental role to play. Um, there is a lot of knowledge that sits within different parts of an organisation um, and you need to pull that knowledge in, you know, and you need to find all of those sources of truth and staff are a part of that. Uh, brand is not just about your logo and design that sits on the outside. Your your internal brand, your employer brand, um, what makes you an employer of choice is a fundamental part of your branding as well. Um, and for that reason, you want to understand how your employees, who you are your most important advocates, really connect and, and why they're there and, and what matters to them. Um, so... On the two levels, they have knowledge um, that should be brought into the process and then also um, the brand matters as an employer brand as well. Um, so on both those levels, yes. I think one of the challenges in branding is when you get people involved in what and how. Um, decision by committee is a horrible way to make branding choices. Um, we all like, you know, you look around the room, you look at what we're wearing, we all chose different outfits today because we have different tastes. Um, and what you like and what you don't like in branding is fundamentally unimportant. And it's probably the one of the most difficult conversations that I have with clients um, is getting them to step back from the personal um, and and trying to help this this brand almost emerge as a person and, and create its its identity that is right for it. Uh, so getting staff involved in colour choice and logo choice and things, I, I would generally say a big no, um, unless it's a fundamentally collective brand. But even still, I think you you get them to make decisions on strategic pillars rather than visual outcomes. Um, so yes, to a point. On the staff um, element, I, I was struck as Andrew was talking about, you know, trade shows and, and the amount that is invested and Monica mentioned, you know, the numbers of meetings that people have to have to get a product to market and I think 
unless your staff fundamentally understand your story, I think that's really where the key element of staff comes from, is that every single touch point of your organisation has to understand what business you're in and what your story is to tell and consistently tell that, which is a, such an important part. The, the, as you said, the visuals are just the tools that you use to tell that story, but being able to tell that story in, in recruiting the right staff is so important. It's a great question, John, thank you. Any other questions from the floor? Ella. So, a question for everyone is, uh, we listened about different markets and uh, customers' behaviours in different cultures. Um, what I would like to know is, do you see uh, in uh, uh, selling your products, uh, do you see increase of uh, online orders and do you see, um, uh, I understand, Andrew, the importance of the professional uh, endorsements and um, it's extremely important for someone who is uh, known in the industry to put a number of stars uh, to the product and experience. Um, but as well, do you see the value, uh, an increase of that value of the personal reviews which are on your websites and as well considering it's it's difficult to, to place products, especially like wine and octopus like that, it has to be someone to say uh, that they enjoyed the product um, and someone else on the other side to believe in that story. Um, do you see increase in, uh, in um, that um, online presence and orders, or this is something still that uh, we see the markets will really uh, will be difficult to move from that traditional face-to-face -face and from brick to click. So, it's a really interesting question, Ella, and I think particularly in the wine industry, we're seeing a number of apps emerge that are almost all consumer-based ratings, and people are going into bottle stores and around the world and just being able to press a button and see global reviews. Andrew, I might start with you. Um, yeah, it is important. I, I also have two restaurants, so we've got the wine bar in Margaret River and the uh, cellar door has a restaurant as well. And the staff actually keep me away from the passwords because uh, they uh, they won't let me respond to the bad reviews. So <laughs> I like to say nice things to the good people, but so no, I'm totally banned from it. So I <laughs> um, yeah, it is important. It's a world we live in now. Um, you know, you go on the Dan Murphy site and a customer can put a review in on your wine and uh, it's unfiltered. So, you know, they may have had a bad experience with your Chardonnay, it's just one person, but the next person going through. So it's important. In, in the restaurant side of the business, we do focus, if we do get a bad review, is the staff are then uh, focused on getting eight good reviews to push that one down. Um, unfortunately, it's a, it's a part of the business that we deal in. And, and with the, the wine, the, the journos are... The interesting thing of wine versus food, um, the professional wine journos um, tend to, and it, it's like an industry code, but they tend to just um, write up wines that they like. Whereas restaurant journos will just slam you. And a wine journal would never do that to a wine that they think is oxidised or they think it's got brett or they think it's got you know, a fault to it. it they, just won't, they just won't write it. So it's it's a bit more in that way, but dealing with it, it's it's um, you know we've got space on our website where people can do comments and uh, and we reply to them, and the key is actually we do reply to all reviews um, when we can. Um, uh, the 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 wine ones now, 
it, it's just a matter of just monitoring them. But really, you've just got to complete complete your head down and and don't get too distracted by the online noise. I think that's the key. Don't get don't change. Don't suddenly take a turn left just because one person says your Chardonnay's got too much oak. You know, a classic example is that you know we enter our wine in in, in wine shows like everyone else and. We invested a lot. Margaret River is classically Cabernet and Chardonnay, and that's what we want to sell to the world. We do other varietals, but the, what, what is world-class from Margaret River is Cabernet and Chardonnay. So we've invested a lot over the last, just over the last two years. We've really put a lot of money into growing our Cabernet and Chardonnay and a lot of investment in oak, hundreds of thousands of dollars in oak and all this sort of stuff, just to because we want to bring... Swings and Roundabouts is a whimsical name, but we want to tell people that we're a premium product and that we are serious about our winemaking, even though we like to have fun. We entered this Chardonnay that the winemaker and I thought, oh, it's hands down, it's a damn good wine. We entered it in the Sydney show and it didn't even get a bronze medal and we thought, geez, what's gone wrong here? You know, so we had a crisis meeting thinking, you know, what, did we buy the wrong oak, did that? Three weeks later was the Perth show and we won best West Australian white wine, best white wine in Australia, best Chardonnay in Australia. So it's, it's a lottery sometime in these shows. So, But it's, it, it, I guess getting back to your point, don't get distracted by the online noise by, by um, non-professionals because you take it on board but don't change what you're doing. And I think Ella's point too about bricks versus online and mortar, without that story and without something physical and tangible, it makes it very hard to take something internationally as well because it is such an important part of the story. Yeah, go, Emma. Just a comment on that is um, w it's in, in a, a branding perspective, it's what we refer to as the referral brand. Um, and there was a time when referral brands were for professional services where, you know, if, if you wanted a, a good wine distributor, you'd come and have a conversation here and, and get their advice on, on who a good distributor is. If you want a good accountant, then you're going to speak to your people who are in a similar situation to you of who's a good accountant for this. And that was a referral brand. Um, these days, I think nearly every brand is a referral brand on steroids. Um, and you need to understand what does that referral market, so that, that commentary that, that happens online, what does it mean to you? And what is, um, and I use this term brand voice a lot, but what is the way that you do that? Like you, you don't give passwords to people who are going to slam the critics is <laughs> fairly good advice uh, from a brand voice perspective. But, but understand what that does mean to your brand and, and what is that voice that you're going to put out there in the market that is authentic to you and how do you engage in conversations? Um, you may make an active choice not to, uh, but, but that needs to be a strategic and active choice that you make. With, with good consideration of what that voice means um, and how it has an impact uh, in, in your positioning in the marketplace. I'm just going to take a quick tangent question because I was thinking about wine and trade shows and, and octopus and tastings and I recalled a conversation I had for a project recently um, with a walnut producer that was talking about how to get walnuts internationally. And when we're dealing with so many of West Australian products, there's a whole lot of temperature hygiene, all sorts of really quite logistical-based decisions that go about getting a product to a reviewer who is actually going to enjoy the wine. Because if it's not served at the right temperature or, you know, the octopus has gone off in transit, clearly you're not going to be able to have the best product. And a massive challenge, I guess, from a small producer point of view is getting a, a container that's the right temperature that suits your product and maybe sharing it with someone else that has the same temperature and those sorts of things. Monica, with your technical background, how much 
emphasis is on just getting that product in premium quality to market and the logistical decisions that you have to make to do that. Obviously, if you're dealing with a premium product, what you are selling is that premium product and the premium in the premium price. So getting it to the customer, it's important. And usually, let's say just basic on a packaging, you should have a statement how it should be stored. And the quality of the product will remain uh, premium if you keep up those points. Keep it minus 18 degree frozen at all times. Consume it within seven days, obviously. Or let's say we've got some marinated octopus. If the octopus is at all times submerged in a liquid, the quality will last. It will last not only for the seven days, it will last even four weeks. And if you decided to buy a huge volume, obviously, let's say five kilo of marinated octopus, you're not gonna be eating it within one sitting. And <laughs> most likely, most likely you like to have it maybe mm, two weeks later. So if you keep up the right uh, conditions for your product or whatever you are buying, you will be able to actually sell that product uh, as a premium. And obviously the distribution side of it, it's really important. Uh, choosing the right distributor, distributor or right uh, transport company. Do your research, make sure they are reliable. They, if they said, yes, we do have a refrigerated uh, transport and we can get your product, let's say we, we shipped 10 ton of our octopus last year to America. So choosing the right transport company who will keep up the minus 18 degree for two months on a sea over to New York is important. Imagine something happens, you choose the right, uh, wrong transport company and 10,000 uh, kg kilograms of octopus is gone. End of the day, who will be paying for it? The customer will not pay for it if you do not deliver the product you promised. So it is important to keep up the conditions uh, and for a customer as well, obviously, to keep up the conditions your product requires. I just had a very flash, bad flashback to when we were in the cheese business and we sent a courier from Perth to Subiaco and they decided to keep the cheese despite the fact that it was refrigeratable and with ice uh, for 48 hours in the courier's truck and then delivered it to a customer. It wasn't good <laughs> on any level. And I can only imagine that times 110. And again, the importance of having the right documents so that things don't get held up in customs or that we don't have ships sitting on dock or cheese sitting in you know airport terminals in <laughs> Singapore waiting for the right documentation to get it onto various bits and bobs. A very complex story. Um, any other questions from the floor before we wind up? Jeff Palm from ASCII. Um, just to the two exporters, um, I was just wondering if you've used EFIC at all and what was your experience with them? Not used? Nope. <laughs> Did you have a comment on them in general, sir? Or no, it's just I was at our conference uh, two weeks ago and Ethic was there and did a presentation and I've had dealings with them in the past and I was just wondering if they provide grants and support for businesses that are exporting to help in the export drive. So I was just looking for some first-hand experiences. Well, we, we um, yeah, export development grants. Well, we, yeah, EMTG is what we use in the wine industry and, uh, yeah, I've had fantastic experience with it, you know, um, 
So uh, obviously, as you're starting out with EMDG grants, you get seven years, your first seven years, um, and you can claim back a percentage of your flights, your accommodation, your, your trade shows, but you can't claim back marketing per se. So if uh, we did an ad and put it in a magazine in the US, um, you can't claim that back, but you can complain your trip back and it's a fantastic thing. And you, it's not seven years straight, it's you choose when to put it in, but you can put seven claims. So if you um, didn't do much travel in one year, then you might choose not to claim that year, but then you build it up. But also with the wine industry, we've got Pacific grants at the moment where we're the wine industry's received individual funding from the state government, uh, from the federal government, uh, to build uh, into China. We've got forty million for China and ten million for the US, and that's a one shot. So you you choose your trip, uh, first in best dress too. So it got a lot of wineries off their ass, um, and uh, you go to market and you can claim back basically fifty percent of your trip. So um, and I think we've eaten up most of that money now. So but anyway. I do believe my company applied for some grants as well. There was some grant f regarding production expenses, especially we are targeting uh, export and Asian market. We had, I don't want to say the amount, um, or I don't know actually, uh, and also there is another two grants. When we targeted China Expo market, you can apply for a 50K grant and it will pretty much cover your flights hotel accommodation and th other things within that grant and it's pretty helpful actually there is more grants out there than you think actually, actually. so there are quite few out there just research end of the day yeah, I think it's actually a really good point you raised, sir, um, particularly when we talked about scale and the cost in getting product to market, the amount of different government grants from, you know, entrepreneurial grants to specific export grants to R&D, right through um, such an important part of this conversation, particularly for small operators. And, you know, even on a, a smaller scale as part of what we see coming through um, from an export documentation point of view, understanding what paperwork will enable you to get good tariff discounts in international countries, those sorts of conversations make a massive difference for how you manage the costs of, of such a, um, I guess, high capital um, component of a business. I think that's all we've formally got time for today, unfortunately. Um, it's been an amazing conversation. I know we've jumped around a little bit from, you know, branding to trade shows to products to price to grants but such a complex um, part of our businesses, that idea of getting the business you're in into it to another market and to another place so thank you all very very much i do have a small gift for you not in the room um, but i will be bringing it out shortly thank you to everyone in the room for coming and joining us this morning and um, if you've got any more specific questions on exporting obviously our panel is still here please continue to help yourselves to morning tea um, i did indicate to them earlier but marion if you could just pop your hand up briefly. Um, Marion's our export officer here at the Chamber. If you've got any specific questions um, around the documentation process, please don't hesitate to ask. We've also got representation here from Mediterranean Shipping Com Company that have a lot of experience um, in Allah here too. So an amazing amount of experience and knowledge in this room this morning. So thank you all very, very much for being part of it. <laughs>